Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the minister versus the mayor. While the latest in the Surrey police deadline is Minister Mike Farnworth demands a report today. Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke joins us for a one-on-one discussion. Plus, the president of a Surrey Sikh temple is gunned down in his vehicle. We speak to a journalist he confided to about concerns over his safety. And if approved, the new Jericho Lands development would bring 13,000 new homes to Vancouver. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth exchange what would be best described as heated words, although not to each other directly at the same event, but over a press conference and, of course, an interview here on CKNW, both, of course, discussing uh, what or where policing in Surrey should go. The Solicitor General gave the city until 1 p.m. today to provide the report into policing to him and ministry staff. Uh, Mayor Brenda Locke was asked about uh, the NDAs that she needed uh, the minister and and uh, his staff to sign. Take a listen. Well, Minister Farnworth, the NDAs have been sent to you, your staff, and you have now signed them. You will receive the report you are asking for. That is less than two working days. I don't think we've done too bad in Surrey. Uh, After the months, the six months you took to do anything with this report. Now, as you know, on Friday, Brenda Locke announced Council voted to retain the RCMP in Surrey and not continue with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. This is a, an incredibly fluid situation. It's moving hour by hour. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey. Uh, Brenda, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, so just to clarify, as of 3 p.m. right now, uh, does the minister and his staff have the report? Do they have the report? They have the report if they have signed the NDA. So um, when I made that statement today, Mm -hmm. we had a list of people that were saying they would sign the NDAs, but I don't know. I'm hopeful that they've signed them. They certainly will get them as soon as that happens, so it's on them. Okay. Uh, A philosophical question, and a legal one, I guess, but do you fundamentally believe that council, Surrey Council, have the final say on what type of policing you should have in your city, or do you believe the Solicitor General can impose a decision? Do I I fundamentally believe it, or do I believe in law? Um, Fundamentally, I believe we should. We pay the bills. We do uh, what we need to do as a city. We are on the ground. We know what policing looks like. Look, this minister has come out, and the Premier have come out and said that there is somehow a crisis in Surrey, there is some policing crisis. That is so far from the truth, I can't tell you. There is no problem in Surrey with public safety. That is a manufactured crisis that he has been saying over the last few days, for what reason, I do not know. But if he truly believes that, he should be calling the board, the Surrey Police Service Board, or 
the um, the officer in charge of the RCMP. He hasn't done that, and I can tell you, I have. I have talked to the officer in charge. There is no police. There is no public safety issues in Surrey. In fact, we are seeing our crime severity index decline year after year after year. But I want to. But legally, do you believe the city has the right to decide what type of policing they wish to see? We legally do have the choice to pick our police force. Absolutely, that is very clear. That's in the Police Act. So if the minister decides to impose the SPS based on the parameters that he set in the report that he released uh, a month ago, will this end up in court then? Well, I don't know. I don't know what will happen then, to be honest with you, Jazz. This is, uh, as you said earlier, this is fluid and I don't think either the city, well I know the city doesn't want to go to court and I am highly doubtful that the the minister and particularly the premier are going to want to take on the second biggest city in search in uh, British Columbia mm-hmm. and have a fight with us that, that doesn't serve anybody and it certainly doesn't serve the taxpayers or our residents and, and know this, we have been we have had several polls done. There have been a myriad of them. They all say the same thing. The vast majority of the residents of Surrey, over two to one, want to keep the RCMP as the city's police force. Mm-hmm. That is not changed in four and a half years. And so here we are today. Um, and, and I don't understand... Jazz, if I could say anything, I would like to know why. We cannot get the Premier or the Solicitor General to tell us why they are doing this, why they are being so aggressive with Surrey. This is uh, out of character uh, for a provincial government, and I'm perplexed. Uh, I tweeted out earlier today that cost, uh, when you look at the numbers, uh, there's a fundamental difference. What I mean by that is in 2020, the Opal report projected the operating expenses for the Surrey Police Service would be about $19 million uh, per, per year in its first first year of full operation, about $95 million over five years. Now, the city in 2022 identified $235 million in operating costs over five years. And then when they looked at the collective agreement with SPS, they found an additional $300 million operating costs over five years. So at its core, what it's what I was saying in the tweets that I put out earlier today is that 2020 report said it would be the cost for SPS and operating would operating costs would be 95 million over five years. But when you crunch the numbers, all the numbers, including the collective agreement, the difference between that report and what the city uh, has discovered is there's a $400 million plus difference in costs, over $440 million, in fact. Can you walk me through, as much as you can, I know you signed an NDA, how much of a role does cost play, overall cost for policing and the decision that was made last week? How much of a role did these new numbers play? Well, I can, and you're right, I can't say what happened on Thursday, but I can tell you this, and we know this because this was in uh, previous uh, reports. We know that over 30, between 30 and $35 million is the delta, the difference per year between the SPS and the, and the RCMP. They are 30 to $35 million higher. We know that. That isn't taking into consideration. That's just using a static state of, of um, financing. Hmm. We don't know um, what the SPS is going to do because 
they haven't told us, quite frankly. They haven't told us what their plan is for five years from now. We know what the RCMP, uh, how the RCMP operates. But just even using that, we're talking at least, let's just be kind and say $30 million more per year. And I can tell you, you take that over 10 years, that's $300 million. And that's just the Delta that we know of today. And we know that it'll be significantly more because that doesn't include um, a lot of the uh, capital. I'm told capital costs um, uh, between what the Opal report said, which is about 40 million in one-time capital and, and transitional costs, the Surrey report or sorry, certainly the numbers that staff were looking at potentially were anywhere between 175 to 280 million dollars. So even yeah. at, at, a, at a conservative end, that's another 130 million dollar difference in what was said in 2020 and what is being said uh, said now. At its core, it, it says to me that the numbers, like the numbers that were used in the past and what is potentially the numbers you're looking at now, like they're just miles apart. Like it's day versus night. Yes, we we would be looking at, and um, we we can project even looking at the numbers that we know we have, the numbers that we've talked about, anywhere from a seven to a ten percent um, Mike Farnworth NDP tax on the city of Surrey for policing. That's additional. That will be additional next year. If we stay, if we stay with the RCMP. There will be no there will be no change because we've already captured the they keep talking about the severance and all we've captured that this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also was hearing that the 150 million dollars that the government offered uh, for one time transition uh, for the police, 150 million over five years, that would, according to the city staff, would only capture maybe 20 percent of the real costs of the transition. Right, and you're right, but. It was, quote, up to in the, uh, in the letter we received. And it's notional funding. That, none of that has passed through Treasury. So it's really, it, it's not firm. So I, I, uh, I don't think we could hang, hang our hat, but it's not nearly enough. This is a forever cost. And that's, that's my concern. I mean, honestly, Jazz, I'm, I'm a senior. <laughs> I'm worried about my kids, my grandkids. We're talking 10 years from now. People will be paying hugely inflated um, policing costs in this city that they don't need to pay. Uh, there's no doubt you have a disagreement with the minister. Uh, but Mike Farnworth has been a longtime minister, a longtime public figure, an elected official. Uh, do you think it was right or do you think it's accurate to refer to his actions as bullying and do you is there any change in the comments you made just a few hours ago of uh, of accusing him of being uh, or accusing him of misogyny? So, um, Jazz, I phoned the minister. I told him I would phone him after the meeting. Mm-hmm. He was trying to tell me not to do the vote in the beginning. I said, "No, we're going forward with the vote um, because we have to." Because if you remember, two weeks prior, he was telling me Siri has to get on with it and get make a decision, make a decision. Well, we made a decision. He didn't like it. He knew that was the road we were going down. Then I tried to phone both him and the Premier after to let them know. I felt it was important that I I told people the decision that was made by Council, and I had the authority to do that from 
council and uh, they won't take my call. On the weekend, on the weekend at uh, 10 o'clock, as a matter of fact, on Friday, his EA calls me and says, um, sends uh, or sends to my staff another email saying this is not acceptable that we're not getting the the report. Well, this is silly and this is absolutely this is bullying. I mean, they could pick up the phone. The minister could have picked up the phone two weeks ago, three weeks ago. He probably should have done it right from day one, and he never has. And so um, do I think he would have treated somebody else this way? I'm not so sure. Uh, and uh, have disrespectful, you respectful that's for sure mm-hmm. he's the minister ultimately the Surrey plays a big role in provincial elections and it is the second largest city in this province uh, and it is growing very quickly have, do you have any relationship with the premier of this province because not just uh this issue but many others that Surrey deals with like many other urban centers do you have any sort of relationship you've built up with the premier or is he just somebody you don't talk to at all no, I did talk to the Premier, and I talked to the Premier as well going into this meeting, and I have talked to the Premier many times up until now, and he as well sent a note saying he wouldn't talk to me. Uh, one out of ten, how badly do you want this to, this to end? <laughs> uh, Eleven. I, I want this, I want this be, and I'm pretty sure everybody does. I can tell you uh, people in Surrey, but I can tell you the other thing. And I've been, I was at a lot of events this weekend. It was a particularly active weekend in Surrey. The public wants to keep the RCMP. I was getting a lot of high fives. Stay the, stay the course. I get that same message from many, many other people. So it, it's not just about being stubborn, and that's the problem. The, it is about doing the right thing, the right thing for Surrey, is to stay with the RCMP. I am absolutely convinced of that. I will thank the uh, solicitor for one thing. I think for us to go through the exercise that we just did because of the report he uh, asked us to review, uh, for me, mm-hmm. um, it just made me feel uh, more more secure in my deliberation on that. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's something we have to do. We... we uh, want to keep the RCMP, the public wants to keep that, and so uh, obviously does this council. Uh, Mayor Locke, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, I'm sure if you've listened to CKNW um, the last 24 hours or so, you've realized or heard that Hardeep Singh Nijar, who is the General Secretary of the Guru Nanak Sikh Society on Scott Road in Surrey, was alone in his pickup truck when he was attacked Sunday night as he was leaving the uh, Gurdwara's parking lot. Uh, he was in the vehicle in the parking lot when he was attacked. Mr. Nijar was married and had two sons and also leaves behind his parents. Um, Mr. Nidra, I'm told by his friends, uh, had received threats because of his support for a separate Sikh state in India called Khalistan. Now, in 2016, the government of India was seeking uh, Mr. Nidra's extradition from Canada on charges related to extremism. And as I said, he was shot dead outside the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara Temple in Surrey yesterday. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Gurpreet Singh. He is a talk show host and newscaster for Spice Radio. Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate that. Uh, your thoughts uh, a day after this shooting, what is the general mood that you're sensing from the community? 
the community is very upset uh, and outraged and i can understand why that is the case because hardeep singh major has been very vocal about uh, what happened i mean he he saw it coming he has been anticipating this he has been saying this uh, number of times even yesterday uh, he made a last speech which is now on social media that reveals this fact uh, last time i interviewed him was in the month of may which he categorically said that he might be targeted by the indian intelligence so uh, what i can only say that uh, uh, people were anticipating this because he, they have been hearing him out so after he's gone everybody is upset that why the police and intelligence failed to protect him that is the reason why there is so much anger so uh, just to confirm you spoke to him last month and he told you that he believes he would be um targeted by yes. a foreign intelligence service the indian foreign intelligence service raw research and analysis wing that they would yeah. they're out to to kill him yes so i i will give you the context uh, yes uh, what happened was in the month of may a prominent khalistani leader uh, paramjit singh panjwar he was assassinated in pakistan so at that time hardeep singh major and his group they made a statement they came out with a very strong statement condemning the murder and also saying that this was done by the indian intelligence uh, through contract killers and they had apprehended that this can happen in canada as well so um, i interviewed him for my radio in which he actually mentioned that that he is uh, expecting this to happen even in canada mm-hmm. and he was saying he was categorically naming uh, indian prime minister and the your government official that they are determined to uh, silence all the voices of dissent uh, whether somebody is talking about human rights or the self determination they can be liquidated and he said that i am one of the one of those who is on their hit list um, was uh, mr nijer working towards uh helping or the creation of khalistan an independent sikh state whether through just moral support through speeches fundraising uh because the uh, you know in 2016 it's been reported the government of india was seeking mr nijer's extradition uh on charges yeah. of ex- extremism give me a sense of his support was it just vocalizing his support or was this a case of fundraising or 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 other things he was doing uh, advocacy he was uh, actually involved in the referendum for a separate homeland for the sikhs and he always used to say that i am not involved in any kind of violent activity he used to say that there is no criminal charges against me in canada and he was never convicted let's face it mm-hmm. so the indian government has been saying that he is involved in terrorist activities but we cannot authenticize their claims mm-hmm. we have i have no way i can find that out but what i can tell you is that when they were saying that he is running a ter- training camp in mission in 2016 that story uh, turned out to be a hoax uh, vancouver sun reporter kim bolan actually confirmed that there is no uh, truth in that story uh, police actually and the mission government everybody uh, came out with a different kind of uh, message so that story t- turned out to be a pure hoax and a figment of imagination so, uh, so ever since then ever since then he's been uh, on their uh, uh, i mean he's been targeted repeatedly by the indian media then the national investigation agency put him on uh, the red corner notice mm-hmm. they uh, described him as a uh, 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 dangerous terrorist and, and blah 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 
but we we are for, for sure we can say that he was never convicted and he was never charged for any kind of violent activity in canada mm-hmm. um, you were talking about uh, uh, mr nigger advocating for an independent sikh state khalistan right. um, some have said you know you can certainly see there are sikhs here in canada who are supportive of an independent state but many have also said that look the majority of the community live in canada this is home they don't pay attention to that stuff. How real is the support for Khalistan? Is it a, a small but vocal minority? Is it a bigger majority uh, that are seeking this? Because one could argue that, look, you live in Canada. Canada is home. You've raised your children here. They're not going back to India. Where is this um, this desire uh, and advocacy coming from? Because one would argue that these folks aren't going back to India. They're Canadians now. No, you, you are definitely right. Uh, this is a vocal minority which is asking for Khalistan. Khalistan was never a popular demand in Punjab. Even during the time when the Khalistan movement was at, at its peak, it, was ne- it never had a popular support. And that is the reason why it died out. Uh, so Khalistan was never a popular issue in Punjab, neither in Punjab, neither in diaspora. I mean, diaspora, uh, we know that Khalistan movement is still very strong. There are people out here who do openly advocacy for a separate homeland. But still, that's a vocal minority. i give you one example, Jess. Maybe this will give you some idea. When Dashmeh Chalwar organizes the Sakhi period every year, we all know Dashmeh Chalwar supports Khalistan. There is no question about it. That's the temple of 128th often, Street in Surrey. Yes. Okay. Yes. And they often encourage the participants to uh, wear saffron turbans and to the women to wear saffron scarves or the patta. Very rarely people do it. I mean, not everybody is doing that. Mm-hmm. Most of the people go there to enjoy the festival, right? Mm-hmm. So from this, you can have a sense that not everybody is on the same page. Mm-hmm. Not every Sikh living in Surrey is supporting Khalistan. So Khalistan is being supported by a vocal minority. And Hadeep Singh Nijjar represented that minority. But the problem is that the Khalistan um, needs to have some kind of ground support it has to, if it has to come into existence. That ground support is missing in Punjab. Uh, final question to you. Uh, you know, there are accusations that the Indian Foreign Service was involved in this or Secret Service. Uh, and mm. That hasn't been proven, but that is certainly uh, an allegation, and you heard that last night. We've had a broad mm. conversation about China's interference uh, in our uh, right. election. Uh, do you mm. think this is once again a reminder to us, or once again and perhaps another example, that we do need to have a public inquiry into foreign interference in Canada? Absolutely. This demand was raised by the uh, official opposition NDP uh, a few years ago when the Jaspal-Latwal controversy was reported in the media. So they have been asking for a public inquiry into the foreign from from the Indian government. What happened recently was Moninder Singh, who is the uh, former president of Tashmish Darbar, he came out with a report uh, pointing out that how Indian government is also interfering in Canada, but nothing is done, done much. So Murinder and Hardeep, they both are colleagues and they both were facing some kind of threats ever since Malik uh, got murdered last year. So since then they have been saying that uh, they have been visited by the RCMP and I'm told to wash their backs. Thank you so much for your time today. It is a very complex issue uh, and a challenging one and uh, I really appreciate uh, you going out of your way today. Uh, to, to giving us giving us a better sense of uh, of what's uh, what's real and what's on the ground. Thank you so much today.
Thanks to you, Jess, for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate that. You may recall our show on Friday. We were talking to Francis Beulah, the Globe and Mail um, senior reporter, who had written an article on the Jericho lands on Friday. MST Development Corporation, which is um, a corporation uh, that involves um, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. They retain ownership of that uh, development corporation, and they unveiled Friday that they want to build uh, 13,000 homes on a 36-hectare site, uh, of course, on the west side. It's got a tremendous um, amount of housing attached to it, of course, a lot of towers, uh, some smaller buildings as well. It's a mixed-use community. Lots of interesting uh, proposals there. Those, of course, who very much love the idea of 13,000 homes uh, being available uh, in the west side of Vancouver. We already have a housing crisis. Others have said it's too big of a proposal for that particular site. A lot of conversation around it. I'm very happy to have our guest who will hopefully shed some light for us in regards to that project. His name is Hale Salem, of course. He is a, a longtime guest on this show. He is the Squamish Nation Council Chair. Hale Salem, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, uh, how daunting is it for MST Development Corporation, and specifically uh, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, to put together a project of this site, 36 hectares, 13,000 homes? Um, as a First Nations people, just give me a sense of what it was like just from day one starting a project like this. It is a very groundbreaking, exciting project for us, largely because of the history of us uh, reacquiring the lands in 2016. You know, these were lands that we had to negotiate to reacquire from the federal and provincial government, which then started us on the process of developing a land use uh, concept plan for the project. Um, it's been a number of years to get us to this point. There's still many years uh, left to go before we would enter construction. But throughout the planning process, we've consulted, you know, elders from our communities, uh, youth from our communities, our, our different uh, families, as well as the general public over the last uh, two years to really come up with a plan that addresses many of the different needs that we have as First Nations, but also find a way to collaborate with the City of Vancouver and the general public to bring about a vision for the development that helps achieve a number of goals that we share between First Nations and non-First Nations society, including um, uh, 2,600 affordable uh, social housing units and 1,300 uh, moderate income rental units that would be incorporated into the project, mm-hmm. and then the rest being uh, market uh, leasehold strata condos that would ultimately provide a significant amount of revenue to support the First Nations in our programs and service needs. Now, some of, uh, and Francis said this yes, uh, on Friday, that generally when you bring a, a proposal forward for the second or third time, it sometimes uh, comes in big, comes in a bit, and comes back a little smaller or redesigned, uh, a bit more modest. In this case, uh, it, it, you, the project itself uh, went the opposite way, where uh, in regards to housing itself, increased significantly, some say by 50%, from 9,000 homes to 13,000 homes. Can you talk to me a little bit about the decision-making behind going from 9,000 homes initially to 13,000 homes potentially? Yeah, I would say that there's two pieces to it. One is um, we've been working through the planning of this project in collaboration with the City of Vancouver. So we have a joint team between the MSC Development Corporation, Canada Lands Company, uh, which is a federal crown corporation, and the City of Vancouver. So we all have one combined team that's sort of working on the planning. And there's two pieces to it. One is the City of Vancouver 
um, throughout a number of mayors and councils for the last 10, 15 years have been very committed to working and supporting the First Nations here in Vancouver. Um, and so that's a big piece that the city is encouraging the nations um, to advance uh, a vision for our lands that uh, we feel is necessary. And then on the, the flip side, I think the nations themselves, um, ourselves, um, from the community level to the political level have said, um, is this the right mixture of units? Are we doing enough uh, to support the overall opportunity? And I think coming through that, you have the city of Vancouver encouraging us to explore what is possible for the site, including adding in more housing, mm-hmm. as well as our own communities asking, is, is this the highest and best use for the land that we have? Uh, I think there are, are three towers that are 49 s- stories. Um, uh, there's other development as well, low rise, high rise as well. But many have said it's just too big for West Point Grey. And some have uh, you know, referred to it in a derogatory way as calling it Metro Town by the Sea, that you don't need that type of development. Uh, is this a desire for t- to have a community that sort of everything is interconnected? You live there, you play there, you work there. And this is the kind of density you want to see, um, number one. And number two, do you, are you sort of appreciative of, of, of the opposition that is out there to something like this? Yeah, I think the conversation around land use obviously elicits a lot of strong reactions. Um, the particular level of density and the unit size and sort of the tower to mid-rise sort of um, combination is really interesting. So we've actually, from a previous iteration, we've actually reduced the number of high towers and have spread the density throughout the the entire project. So instead of having some four-story or five-story, you know, those go up to about eight and some of the tower heights end up coming down. So we try to spread out the density across the development instead of having just like a wall of towers. Um, The other thing that we've changed is that by concentrating the density into certain types of buildings, we've actually increased the level of park space um, and common space that would exist in the overall development. So we're actually contributing 33% of the total site will be contributed as, as community or park space. Mm-hmm. So th- there's, a, you know, there's trade-offs. There's always going to be trade-offs on this. But I think um, the sort of, the, the sort of um, derogatory for the language that I think sometimes gets used, I think also misses the mark in the sense that we have neighborhoods like in Vancouver right now that have a significant amount of density, but also a lot of mixed use mm-hmm. um, with a mixture of commercial and work and, and uh, liv- livability um, that are highly popular. I mean, you think about neighborhoods like, say, for example, uh, Vancouver's West End, you know, it was controversial and it was built in the 70s. Um, but today is largely, I think, remarked as a very beautiful, very livable, um, a very welcoming neighborhood for a lot of different incomes, different households. And so I see us sort of continuing that, that tradition of Vancouver building very wonderful, popular neighborhoods, but we're also expanding on that vision and including things that even places like, I think, the West End don't have. So I think the SkyTrain connections mm-hmm. to this site as a part of the Broadway extension will create a lot of access in and out of the site. I think that the restoration of some of the natural environment and the historic streams and things like that are going to help contribute to the overall livability of the site. So the density is, I think, um, a lightning rod for some people, mm-hmm. but there's trade-offs. By increasing the density, we've also increased the level of uh, affordable housing on the site, too. What do you say to the argument, that, and I've heard this directed towards the Oak Ridge development, uh, which is not something you know, you're, you're a part of. We've heard uh, this to a certain degree about the Sinoc development as well, and I think we're hearing a little bit about 
the same sort of thing around Jericho, which is you've got these developers who want to build these towers, they're profitable, but now they are involving First Nations communities and are able to work around some of the general opposition in the past when they would never be allowed to build something like this of this nature, but now they feel that they can as long as they have First Nations partners. The First Nations uh, are the sort of, um, you know, in the front, uh, fronting this, these, these large projects, but a lot of the stuff that they want to build would never be built if it wasn't for that involvement of First Nations communities. What do you say to those who make that argument? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fair question to ask in terms of a general curiosity around what does this mean for the future of development within our cities? So I think the dynamics are a little bit um, different from each other. So a typical private developer, especially a one of the larger scale, you know, the West Banks, the Concords, the, the, those types of big time developers um, within our city, if they were given a 90 acre site and they were to develop it, um, largely the profits that they generate are going into their private uh, interests. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a private company, private owners, you know, that, that kind of thing. The difference here is that these are lands that have been reacquired by three First Nations governments. Um, the development of the lands and the profits that are generated off of them are all going towards basically nonprofit uh, social purposes. The, the revenue will go to support the needs of the three communities. Um, as an example, you know, in my community in Squamish Nation, we've identified over $500 million in capital needs over the next 10 to 20 years to be able to build things like elementary and high schools, clinics, elder care facilities, um, parks and recreational facilities, um, affordable housing to support our people. Like we have over a half a billion dollars in capital needs and mm-hmm. projects like Jericho, once they start to generate revenue are actually going to be how we pay for those things. And just so to... I, I would say that it's, it, it's an opportunity. Or I think the dynamics are slightly different where, these are not just a typical private interest. These are actually communities that are trying to generate wealth. Uh, and just to confirm, this project, the Jericho project specifically, uh, will have to go through planning with the city and ultimately approval would have to come from the city of Vancouver. Yes. So um, these lands are part of the city of Vancouver's jurisdiction. Um, in terms of process, the first step, stage in that is to develop what they call a policy statement. Yep. Um, the, the plans that were released on Friday are the first step um, towards that. Um, the intention is to bring a policy statement to the City of Vancouver Council by the end of this year. Um, following that, uh, the, the development partnership would then have to secure a rezoning on each of the phases, just like a typical rezoning, and there'd be hearings and things like that. And then after the rezoning, there would still have to be uh, a permit issued for construction. So uh, best case scenario we're looking at five years before we enter construction on any of the phases. Uh, since I got you here, my final question to you, uh, uh, and it's not regarding Jericho, but Sinoc. Where are we on Sinoc right now? Uh, I do drive by there every single day. I think I do see a crane. I see a hole in the ground uh, in regards to the first phase, the first building. Can you just give me an update on where you're at? Yeah, um, people will probably see a red crane coming out of the, one of the towers that's sort of starting to take hold. Um, over the next few months, you'll probably see another two cranes go up and then probably by the end of the year uh, there'll probably be around six or seven cranes altogether in the area um, as we move into construction on phase two um, so well underway on phase one phase two coming soon and then eventually um, we'll hopefully secure financing for phase three and four and into construction there as well and so the first building in regards to availability for rental when would that be up i would say best case, best case scenario in the next two years wow there we'll you go. be able to start renting and uh offering it to Vancouverites to live at. 
Hail Salem, thank you so much for your time. Always enjoy our conversation. Look forward to, to continuing the conversation on Jericho uh, in the yeah. weeks and months to come. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let's revisit our lead story today. Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey, joined us uh, at 3 o'clock to talk a little bit about uh, where she feels the policing file is at. Now, earlier today um, on the Mike Smith Show, Mike Farnworth, our Solicitor General, um, was on the show, was on NW, and uh, kind of surprising to me, and, and hopefully our, our next guest will touch on this a little bit as well, he he brought in or talked about, Mike Farnworth said, he it's a 1 p.m. deadline for uh, the city of Surrey to have the NDAs to them signed and the report to him. If not, um, he was going to impose the SPS uh, on the city of Surrey. Take a listen to his comments. I don't understand what the delay is in a report that has been uh, given to the council. It was voted on. Um, we were told we were going to get it uh, on Friday. And then we were told, no, we're not. Uh, and then it was, you know, repeated requests over the weekend. Those requirements are not negotiable uh, in terms of, of a return to the RCMP that, that the city would have to meet. And as the statutory decision maker with a responsibility for ensuring public safety, not just in, uh, in Surrey, but across the, the, the province, it's important uh, that I have that information now, as you know, the city of Surrey uh, on Friday announced that council voted to retain the RCMP and not continue with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. So uh, today, of course, with uh, Mike Farnworth, not happy at all uh, in regards to this being dragged on. Well, guess what? Brenda Locke responded to him uh, pretty quickly after Mr. Farnworth made those comments at a press conference today at 1230. Take a listen. Now I can tell you the 15th we made the decision. The 16th was Friday. We had literally one day, one day. And he expects us to have everything ready and a report to him by noon. And he's saying we're playing games? Mr. Solicitor General, shame. And that's where we're at at the moment. Joining me now to decipher all of this uh, is Richard Zussman, Global VC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Jazz. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, uh, you know, Brenda Locke was on at 3 o'clock. She was adamant in regards to the city's position. Um, it certainly felt, uh, you know, she talked about the frustration that was there. Your sense of where we're at today at 4.30 on this situation. So we just got a statement sent to us from Mike Farnworth, Public Safety Minister. We've been waiting all day for this. So here it goes. I'll read it in its entirety, Jazz, because mm-hmm. it's not particularly long. The province has received and signed the city's confidentiality agreement. Ministry staff are now in receipt of the city's corporate report or in the process of reviewing it. The safety of people in Surrey is critical, and we are working urgently, so I may make a determination as quickly as possible if it meets the requirements I laid out to ensure safe and effective policing in Surrey and the province. No mention of this press conference we saw earlier this afternoon from Mayor Brenda Locke where she heaved all sorts of allegations of the public safety minister, calling him a bully, calling him a misogynist, uh, being hugely critical of the province for trying to jam things through quickly here. Uh, But the concerns that have been raised by the minister are ones that need to be addressed by the city of Surrey. He rightfully states that report that was before council on Thursday night for that secret vote uh, is the one that the province needs to see. And there should not have been 
this amount of delay to hand over a report that was already completed. Mm-hmm. And when the mayor speaks about transparency, she's got transparency issues of herself. Not only did she hold the secret vote, but it was a report that the public has not seen. And we have no understanding of how people voted in that. So there are veils of secrecy over both sides of this. Uh, at this point, the province is the only one that has come forward with its report to explain to the public what the best solutions are here. So much has been lost here, Jazz, I think, with the political fighting about what's at hand. Because the RCMP comes with it a lower price tag, it comes with its stability, but it doesn't account for the significant staffing shortages as outlined in the province's report. And we seem not to even be talking about those core issues of cost and staffing Because what we're talking about now is this dynamic between the public safety minister and the mayor of Surrey and the uh, theatrics and the fireworks that have uh, existed between them now over the last uh, 72 hours or so. Yeah, and and let's just move forward just for a moment here. Let's just say Mike Farnworth comes forward and says, you know what, Uh, I don't see enough here. I am going to still encourage and recommend you continue your transition with the SBS. Now, so I asked the mayor today again, do you believe the city of Surrey as elected officials have the right to choose what police force you want? Um, I did, after that, talk a little bit about, um, and uh, she was asked about that. Uh, we talked a little bit about misogyny as well. Take a listen to her comments. It's clear in the Police Act that cities get to choose their police departments. That is our responsibility. Yes, I know they can overrule cities, but I would expect that with all of this, there would be a reasonable person. If you're asking me, do I think legally, I can't answer that. I haven't had that conversation with our um, legal team about that. I guess what if he's not reasonable? I'm just going to be straight up with you. I have worked in politics for a long time. I have worked in the liquor industry for a long time. I have never, ever use the gender card. But in this case, I absolutely think there is misogyny going on, no doubt in my mind. And actually, it's not just me. I've had many people reach out to me and say, he would have never treated Doug McCallum like this. And in fact, um, I would say that probably uh, he was bullied by Doug McCallum, but that's just my position. Well, he is towards me. He is towards me. That's obvious. Wow. That was a press conference uh, earlier today. So, Richard, um, you know, I had tweeted some stuff out today in regards to information that I received that the initial OPA report in 2020 basically said that the operating expenses for the city would be about $19 million a year um, in its first year, but about $95 million over five years. Uh, what I've learned is uh, the city staff identified $235 million in operating costs. That was based on a November of 2022 report over five years. But also on top of that, they went through the collective agreement and they found potentially an additional $300 million in operating costs due to staffing clauses, meaning the operating expenses increase this way would be $535 million over four years. So roughly what I'm saying here is that report in 2020 said $95 million over five years, uh, and the other report says 535 The difference is $440 million from the McCallum era to make that transition to this new Surrey staff report that uh, the minister is going to have or does have before him. Something doesn't add up here if there's a $440 million operating cost difference for the cost over the next five years for the Surrey police. And this is an important conversation to have 
the issue for the public safety minister is that money is not something that he is considering. And I think what has become very clear is that former Mayor Doug McCallum signed a very bad deal for the city of Surrey. And with it comes some really substantial costs. But the public safety minister has said time and time again, he needs to look solely at the issue of policing. And clearly, Mayor Brenda Locke is looking at far more than that. She's looking at the ramifications for her political future. She's looking at the promises that she made, commitments but, she but, made. But, but, but she's, not, she's not wrong here, right, Rich? I mean, she as no, a mayor not, has, a, has a fiduciary wrong. responsibility to her taxpayers to say, here's the true cost of this transition. Forget about the policing stuff. Put all that aside just for a moment. This is what it's going to cost you in your property taxes. And the average person who probably goes, you know, I don't have a crime issue. I'm fine here. Especially the ones that voted for her. They're going and go, good for her for doing what she did. I asked her today, she said she's getting high fives in the community this weekend because she's doing the right thing. So, uh, you know, there may be people in the community who disagree with her vehemently, but her job as a mayor is not just the policing. It's also about cost and how much Surrey taxpayers are willing to absorb. You raise a great point. And that's ultimately the issue here is that her job and Mike Farnworth's job are very different. He's looking at one thing only, and all of these other issues are being brought into it. And Brenda Locke, rightfully, as you describe, is looking at what does this mean for the people who live in my community? And if this police transition is going to cost this much, what does that mean for building new arenas, building green spaces, building roads, maintaining current roads? All things the community won't be able to do if they have to foot this massive bill for policing. But the issue of cost got blown out of the water through all of these comments that the mayor has made. If there was a willingness to talk about the Surrey Police Service, there could have been a window to negotiate that with the province to make sure that the right amount of money was covered. But I feel, based on comments that have been made here, that that window is gone, that those opportunities are over. It is either RCMP with no support from the province or Surrey Police with a minimal support from the province based on the numbers that you've provided. Neither of those situations looks like they're going to be tenable. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it unfolds and, and what powers that the minister tries to impose here on the city of Surrey. But you're right, Brenda Locke is, is seen here is in many regards sticking up for her constituents when it comes to that financial issue. Well, I hope both sides give a little bit here. I think the minister's got to uh, be able to look at the financial cost to taxpayers. You can't just look at policing. And I think there is some give on the city side as well. They should be working together. And look, I've said it before, whether it's SBS or RCMP, I don't care. That's for Surrey residents to decide or the minister or the mayor. But the original sin was there was never open and transparent process to tell the residents of Surrey what the true cost of this transition was going to be, which impacts Surrey residents. And now with $150 million put on the plate by by Victoria, it has now become all of our issue for all British Columbians because we're now paying part of that part of the dollars if it does stick with SBS. So it is um, it is a complete mess either way. Richard, thank you so much, my friend. And I think the minister needs to pick up the phone and call Brenda Locke. As uncomfortable <laughs> as it may be, yeah. I think those conversations are important too. Thanks, Jeff. Well, I'm sure if you've been listening to CKNW um, the last 24 hours or so, you've realized or heard that Hardeep Singh Nijar, who is the General Secretary of the Guru Nanak Sikh Society on Scott Road in Surrey, was alone in his pickup truck when he was attacked Sunday night as he was leaving the uh, Gurdwara's parking lot. Uh, he was in the vehicle in the parking lot when he was attacked. Mr. Nijar was married and had two sons and also leaves behind his parents. 
Um, Mr. Nidra, I'm told by his friends, uh, had received threats because of his support for a separate Sikh state in India called Khalistan. Now, in 2016, the government of India was seeking uh, Mr. Nidra's extradition from Canada on charges related to extremism. And as I said, he was shot dead outside the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara Temple in Surrey yesterday. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Gurpreet Singh. He's a talk show host and newscaster for Spice Radio. Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate that. Uh, Your thoughts uh, a day after this shooting, what is the general mood that you're sensing from the community? The community is very upset uh, and outraged. And I can understand why that is the case because Hardeep Singh Nijar has been very vocal about uh, what happened. I mean, he, he saw it coming. He has been anticipating this. He has been saying this a uh, number of times. Even yesterday, uh, he made a last speech, which is now on social media, that reveals this fact. Uh, last time I interviewed him was in the month of May, in which he categorically said that he might be targeted by the Indian intelligence. So uh, what I can only say that... Uh, uh, people were anticipating this because he, they have been hearing him out. So after he's gone, everybody's upset that why the police and the intelligence failed to protect him. That is the reason why there's so much anger. So uh, just to confirm, you spoke to him last month and he told you that he believes he would be um, targeted by yes. a foreign intelligence service, the Indian Foreign Intelligence Service, raw research and analysis wing, that they would, yeah. they're out to, to kill him. Yes. So I, I will give you the context, uh, Jess. Uh, what happened was in the month of May, a prominent Khalistani leader, uh, Paramji Singh Panjwar, he was assassinated in Pakistan. So at that time, Hadeep Singh Major and his group, they made a statement. They came out with a very strong statement condemning the murder and also saying that this was done by the Indian intelligence uh, through contract killers. And they had apprehended that this can happen in Canada as well. So um, I interviewed him for my radio in which he actually mentioned that, that he is uh, expecting this to happen even in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, he was categorically naming uh, Indian Prime Minister and the, the government official that they are determined to uh, silence all the voices of dissent. Uh, whether somebody's talking about human rights or the self-determination, they can be liquidated. And he said that I am one of the one of those who is on their hit list. Um, was uh, Mr. Niger working towards uh, helping or the creation of Khalistan, an independent Sikh state, whether through just moral support, through speeches, fundraising? Uh, because the you know in 2016, it's been reported the government of India was seeking. Mr. Niger's extradition uh, on charges yeah. of extremism. Give me a sense of his support. Was it just vocalizing his support, or was this a case of fundraising or or, or other things? He was doing uh, advocacy. He was uh, actually involved in the referendum for a separate homeland for the Sikhs. And he always used to say that I'm not involved in any kind of violent activity. He used to say that there is no criminal charges against me in Canada. And he was never convicted, let's face it. Mm-hmm. So the Indian government has been saying that he is involved in terrorist activities, but we cannot criticize their claims. Mm-hmm. We, have, I, we have no way I can find that out. But what I can tell you is that when they were saying that he is running a training camp in Mission in 2016, 
that story turned out to be a hoax. Uh, Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolan actually confirmed that there is no truth in that story. The police actually and the mission government, everybody came out with a different kind of uh, message. So that story turned out to be a pure hoax and a figment of imagination. So, uh, so ever since then, ever since then, he's been on their. Uh, I mean, he's been targeted repeatedly by the Indian media. Then the National Investigation Agency put him on uh, the red corner notice. Mm-hmm. They uh, described him as a, uh, a dangerous terrorist and, and blah blah blah. But we we are for, for sure we can say that he was never convicted and he was never charged for any kind of violent activity in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about uh, uh, Mr. Niger advocating for an independent Sikh state, Khalistan. Right. Uh, some have said, you know, you can certainly see there. Are Sikhs here in Canada who are supportive of an independent state, but many have also said that, look, the majority of the community live in Canada, this is home, they don't pay attention to that stuff. How real is the support for Khalistan? Is it a a small but vocal minority? Is it a bigger majority uh, that are seeking this? Because one could argue that, look, you live in Canada, Canada is home, you've raised your children here, they're not going back to India. Where is this, um, this desire... Uh, an advocacy coming from, because one would argue that these folks aren't going back to India, they're Canadians now. No, you, um, you are definitely right. Uh, this is a vocal minority which is asking for Khalistan. Khalistan was never a popular demand in Punjab. Even during the time when the Khalistan movement was at, at its peak, it, was ne- it never had a popular support. And that is the reason why it died out. Uh, so, Khalistan was never a popular issue in Punjab, neither in Punjab, not, neither in diaspora. I mean, diaspora, uh, we know that Khalistan movement is still very strong. There are people out here who do openly advocacy for a separate homeland, but still, that's a vocal minority. I give you one example, Jess. Maybe this will give you some idea. When Dashmesh Dalwar organizes the Sakhi period every year, we all know Dashmesh Dalwar supports Khalistan. There is no question about it. That's the temple on they 128th often, Street in Surrey. Yes. Okay. Yes. And they often encourage the participants to uh, wear saffron turbans and to the women to wear saffron scarves or the patta. Very rarely people do it. I mean, not everybody is doing that. Mm-hmm. Most of the people go there to enjoy the festival, right? Mm-hmm. So from this, you can have a sense that not everybody is on the same page. Mm-hmm. Not every Sikh living in Surrey is supporting Khalistan. So Khalistan is being supported by a vocal minority. And Hadith Singh Nijjar represented that minority. But the problem is that Khalistan needs to have some kind of ground support it has to, if it has to come into existence. That ground support is missing in Punjab. Uh, final question to you. Uh, you know, there are accusations that the Indian Foreign Service was involved in this or Secret Service. Uh, and mm. That hasn't been proven, but that is certainly uh, an allegation, and you heard that last night. We've had a broad mm. conversation about China's interference uh, in our uh, right. election. Uh, do you mm. think this is once again a reminder to us, or once again, and perhaps another example, that we do need to have a public inquiry into foreign interference in Canada? Absolutely. This demand was raised by the uh, official opposition NDP uh, a few years ago when the Jaspal Atwal controversy was reported in the media. So they have been asking for a public inquiry into the foreign from, from the Indian government. What happened recently was Moninder Singh, who is the uh, former president of Tashmesh Darbar, he came out with a report uh, pointing out that how Indian government is also interfering 
in Canada, but nothing is done done much. So Munindar and Hardeep, they both are colleagues, and they both were facing some kind of threats ever since Malik uh, got murdered last year. So since then they have been saying that uh, they have been visited by the RCMP, and I'm told to wash their backs. Thank you so much for your time today. It is a very complex issue uh, and a challenging one. And uh, I really appreciate uh, you going out of your way today uh, to, to giving, us, giving us a better sense of, uh, of what's, uh, what's real and what's on the ground. Thank you so much today. Thanks to you, Jess, for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate that. As many of you have followed our newscast the last 24 hours, uh, probably heard the president of the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara Society, uh, Hardeep Singh Nijar, was alone in his pickup truck uh, uh, Sunday night where he was shot dead outside the temple uh, in Surrey. He had just left the Gurdwara and was in the vehicle um, uh, when the attack occurred. Mr. Nijar was married, had two sons, and uh, leaves behind uh, his parents uh, as well. Uh, we have learned uh, at the 3 o'clock hour that Mr. Nidger had received threats because of his support for a separate Sikh state in India called Khalistan. In 2016, the government of India was seeking Mr. Nidger's extradition from Canada on charges related to extremism. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the shooting and the death is Gurdeep Sahoda. He is editor of CK News Group and Channel Punjabi. Uh, Mr. Sota, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Jess. Thanks for letting me in. Uh, what is your sense of of uh, how the community is reacting to this uh, uh, to this murder? Our community is very upset because uh, it happened in uh, Gurdwara Sahib, and when lots of people were there, uh, people were walking with families on the roads, on the streets, and also in the parking lot in the neighborhood park. Uh, so they are very scared, and uh, the death in which manner it happened, uh, they are very concerned, and. Uh, uh, somehow, most of them were expecting this because uh, from last one year, there are things in the community, they are hearing this, that uh, uh, there could be another target after Mr. Malik's murder. So uh, there's lots of hearsays, and uh, uh, they are in shock now. Um, there are those who are saying that Mr. Nijer uh, was supportive of an independent Sikh homeland called Khalistan, um, when I say support, was this more advocacy, uh, talking about it, uh, supporting it, speeches, uh, or was this, uh, his involvement even more so than that? What I mean by that is raising money uh, and those types of things. How much of involvement did he have in the Khalistan movement? Uh, based on my knowledge, uh, most of the Gurdwaras locally in Lower Mainland, they support this movement peacefully. So uh, they're talking about it, uh, the oppression, the human rights abuse, often on stage and off stage, outside in public, in Nagar Kirtan's parades. And Mr. Sid, uh, Singh, Mr. Nijer, was also a main organizer of Six for Justice, uh, a group based in the USA uh, who's working to get a referendum uh, on Punjab that uh, people want independence or not. So it's also a political a peaceful movement, and uh, he was the face here in Canada, here in BC. So what you're saying is that what he was supporting was advocacy for Khalistan, which is uh, he, you're able to do as a free, uh, uh, as a citizen in a free society, and that his involvement was not nothing more than that, not raising dollars or uh, interacting with said separatists in those communities uh, in Punjab. Uh, this information 
can only be confirmed by the CSIS or the RCMP, but based on the information we have from the community, he was a peaceful guy, a hardworking plumber, a family person who's working hard day and night at the Gurdwasa. So you can uh, uh, consider this his popularity. Uh, he was uh, chosen, uh, select, not, uh, not elected, he was selected as a president uh, unanimously. So uh, if you will check, go to Godot Sahib 10 years ago, and now you will see a tremendous difference. He was working hard guy, uh, mostly working uh, himself. So people are liking him very much. So most people think that he was a very peaceful, loving, caring guy, uh -huh. and he was demanding for Khalistan or a separate Sikh state, but by peaceful means only, by referendum, mm. uh, which is uh, Sikhs for Justice demanding. Uh, you alluded to the killing of Rufdaman Malik, founder of Khalsa School. A uh, similar uh, type of incident in the sense that it was out in the open. Gunmen came and uh, killed Mr. Malik, in this case, Mr. S uh, Mr. Uh, Niger as well. Uh, what is the thinking in the community that you have high, these high-profile individuals involved directly or indirectly with the Khalistan movement, uh, but that there have been these brazen shootings now? Uh, actually, the, if you check the WSO press releases and the recent uh, statements by the Sikh uh, organizations, uh, they are all saying that uh, a foreign interference by India is a real threat in Canada. Even uh, Prime Minister's uh, security advisor, Judy Thomas, uh, on record said that India is included in the big actors who are doing foreign interference here. So uh, people are expecting that after Mr. Malik's uh, death and the murder, there's something, another, that kind of thing can happen here. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting that you say that. I mean, there's differences wanting to, um, uh, you know, sell a certain perspective uh, in regards to what the Indian government or the Chinese government wants to see, but it's a really different thing when you uh, are accused of sending people over or indirectly being behind a murder plot. Are you saying that the Indian government in this case is actually involved in the planning or indirect involvement of killing of Canadian citizens on Canadian soil? I'm not saying that, but Sikh organizations, yeah. Sikh uh, uh, people, they are saying that. When I was there at Kurdura last night, and everybody was saying that, uh -huh. that they, they knew that it's coming. And openly, Hadeep Singh Nijar was working, advocating for human rights. They knew it was coming. And even Hadeep Singh Nijar himself, yesterday, uh, in the morning time, uh, in the congregation, he said that uh, CISIS uh, called him, and um, he went there, and they were saying that your life is in danger. But he said, I don't care that, because I have to work towards my goal. Uh, do you think this uh, event now, yesterday, uh, the... Um killing of Mr. Malik, uh, the broader conversation about China and its foreign interference, particularly in our elections. Uh, this 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 will um, make the drumbeat for a inquiry into foreign interference even louder. Hundred percent, because uh, uh, when uh, it was only limited to China, then uh, there was a talk uh, in Parliament that it should include Russia as well. It include India as well. It include include Saudi Arabia as well. So uh, everybody is demanding it. That should be a public inquiry about all, not, not limited to China. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Sota, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for taking me. I'm 
now to learn about a very unique program. I heard about this uh, before the show, uh, and joining us now to talk a little bit about it is our contributor, Jerry Mayer-Judson. I was really intrigued when you mentioned uh, this to me this morning. Tell me a little bit about this program. Yeah, so it's called the Doghouse Boarding and Training Program, and it is done by the Langley Association for the Protection of Animals. It's LAPS is the acronym. Ah, I love it. Yes, and uh, yeah, I will actually, Alicia Santella, I spoke with her. Uh, she's the manager of the Doghouse Program, and she can explain it probably better than I can. The Doghouse Program is a vocational training program for federal offenders out here at the Fraser Valley Institution. We're located in Abbotsford, and it is a unique partnership between Correctional Services of Canada and the Langley Animal Protection Society. So we actually have a full-service boarding facility uh, open to the public, working with their dogs and uh, doing daycare training, and boarding are the bulk of the services that we offer. Oh, that's so cool. So if I was going somewhere for a week or whatever, I could bring my dog there and then I could help somebody uh, learn how to do dog boarding. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, It's a really great way for the participants to learn the skills related to not just dealing with the dogs, but um, sort of the business management. And it kind of helps with the reintegration by having that contact with members of the public. That's such a phenomenal idea. It's uh, animal therapy, right? Documented to make people feel better and then you get vocational skills at the same time and then you know public gets access to animal boarding which can be you know a challenge to find someone that like you trust to look after your pet it just I feel like nobody loses and that's fantastic yeah it is it is kind of cool absolutely uh, you know the, the women get to, to benefit from learning the skills the work ethic and getting to interact with the dogs from a from the dog's perspective you know we're we're in a really unique position is that we can offer a high level of care for each dog that comes to stay with us so it's it's nice for them because we can really help reduce the levels of stress that can be associated with being away from home and being in a kennel environment. And it's great because, you know, the funds generated from the program above and beyond the cost of operating the, the program here go back to uh, the Langley Animal Protection Society. So both the women that are participating in the program as well as the clients can feel good about sort of helping the community. Are you um, hearing like whether or not um, these women continue to work with dogs and like the the next sort of phase of their lives? Yeah, so, you know, it's up to them whether they choose to stay in contact. Uh, Of the individuals that have stayed in contact, I do have several that have gone on to work in this industry and are doing very well for themselves. And, you know, we're industry-specific skills. However, there's a lot of skills that are transferable into other jobs. So there are um, individuals who have participated in the program, have gone on for other areas of employment that, that they still stay in contact as well. Oh, that's wonderful. That's, oh, I'm like sitting here just in the booth, just smiling. I'm like, that's so great. (laughs) I feel like I have, you know, one of the best jobs in the world because I do feel like it's very meaningful. I obviously, I love working with dogs. Um, How could you not? Um, You know, I, I I get uh, the benefit of, you know, working with shelter animals as well and helping members of the public um, with some of the challenges with uh, shelter dogs, but also getting to rehome them, um, as well as helping individuals, you know, who are trying to better their lives and gain some skill sets and, and make a change. So, 
uh, I, I, I have a, a super awesome job. LAPS is a, is a pretty amazing organization, you know, both to work for and in the work that we do there. So, you know, this is an example of one of the unique programs that we provide. Um, and I think just having an opportunity for, you know, people to kind of just maybe change their lens a little bit and, and look at things from a different perspective. And, and um, you know, those are, those are part of the things that I enjoy doing uh, in, my, in my line of work. That is an amazing program. Isn't it, though? It's like a good, it's just, it just feels good. And again, like I said in the interview, it's just a no-lose situation. It's actually been in effect since 2006. So clearly, yeah, very, very much effective, just about 20 years now. And they're working based on your report there. Uh, the program is specifically geared for female inmates. Yes. At this point, right? Yes. Um, I, and I guess if you're incarcerated and in regards to learning valuable skills and just not not that you're not in the prison environment, but it's a different environment, especially when you involve animals. It just sort of changes things, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And then it's, you know, I guess, yeah, it's so great. Uh, Alicia was saying, too, that it's great for the dogs. They love all of the extra love that they get because these dogs are just, just stoked out of their minds because all these women, of course, they want to spend time with the dogs. Yeah, and then, like I said, it's it's on the grounds, too. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is on the Fraser Valley Institution, I believe. Yeah, the fe- yeah. federal institution. So that is so amazing. That's a great story, and those folks are doing great works over, over at LAPS and just a great pos- positive environment for, for the inmates as well who are making that transition and for, for, for those folks who need uh, to leave their dog for a few days. right? Exactly. You thank you so much, Jerry. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980-CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at JazzJoeHallBC. Talk to you next time.